The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. Have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Jackson. Uh, thank you for reading that uh, for us once again. Two services, great job. Uh, my name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the director of, uh, or excuse me, pastor of discipleship here at Christ Press. Still, still, still new, still new. Uh, it's my privilege to open the word with you this morning, uh, but join me in a brief word of prayer as we, as we continue. Father, thank you for the miracle of being able to open up the, the Bible and read your words. Send your Holy Spirit here. Open our eyes and our ears and allow our hearts to receive these words that you've set aside for us today. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. It would have been around the time that I was in, in second grade. Uh, my family and I, we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my grandparents lived in South Florida. So during that time in my life, it seemed we found a way to make it to Deerfield Beach, Florida, at least once per year to visit them. And what was so exciting, especially, uh, especially for my brother and me, was the prospect of going to the beach. Yes, we lived in California, but beach going is not really something you do in San Francisco. The weather is fairly cool, even in the summer, and the water never gets very warm there either. So when we visited my grandparents in Florida, this was our time to enjoy the fun and the sun of the, the beach. We traveled all day to get there. Uh, my brother and me, once we got there, we, we, uh, we begged our parents to let us go to the beach, uh, which was just a few blocks from my grandparents where they lived. You could walk there. And so we begged, can we please go, please? My parents reluctantly agreed but only my brother and me would don our swimming attire. My parents accompanied us to the beach, fully clothed in their travel gear. So it was my brother and me in the water and uh, my parents on a park bench atop the beach watching us from afar as we had our fun in the water. What could go wrong? The passage that Jackson just read for us a moment ago is from Philippians 2. And if you know or have been around me very long, you'll know that as much, how much I love this passage of Scripture, I dare say this, this might be my favorite passage in the New Testament. Uh, last week we wrapped up our sermon series on the parable of Jesus, and next week we'll be resuming our, our series in Acts. So this is an in-between week, which we typically call Pastor's Choice. So if you're going to give me a choice on what passage to preach from out of the entire Bible, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that this is the one I land on. Why is that? Well, because what we find in, in this passage is basically a summary of the gospel. It's the gospel in a nutshell. The passage is nothing but good news. It's so densely packed with information, I find myself going back to it and reminding myself of it over and over and over again. 
This passage tells us about Jesus. It tells us who He is. It tells us what He did. And it tells us what that means for you and me, but it also tells us what that means for you and me ultimately, where we're headed with this life in Christ. And I don't want you to miss any of it. But the ocean, the ocean, it's a bit of a paradox. We plan our, our, our vacation times around it. When the calendar makes its way to the warmer seasons, we head towards the water, just as we did, with excitement, with such eager excitement. We couldn't wait to get in the water. And, and it's not just that you, you get into the water. You can do that in a swimming pool. You can do that in a shower or a bathtub. But it's the waves. It's playing in the waves. To this day, when my family goes to the beach, a great majority of our time on the, on the beach is spent being in the water, trying to catch a wave, as they say, catch a wave and allow, us to, to, to allow it to push us ashore. And we, when we successfully do that, we get right back up and we do it again. And then we do it again and again and again. And it's so much fun. It's a picture of paradise. But the ocean is also dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. How could something that brings us so much joy literally threaten our lives? We've, we've yet to go to the beach one time where, where someone in our family doesn't ask the question, do you think there are any sharks? And honestly, how would any of us really know, right? I'm sure it's fine. I've actually heard people say, if you encounter a shark, punch it in the nose. Seems like great advice. <laughs> the sea is also peculiar in that it can show you one thing on the surface and it does something completely different below the surface. Perhaps you've heard of it, they call it an undertow. An undertow is a strong seaward bottom current returning the water of broken waves back out to the sea. All the waves that you have so much fun in as they, as they crash ashore, well, all that water, thanks to gravity, has to go back out to the sea. And as it goes back out to the sea, it creates a current, a, a pulling effect that can drag a swimmer, especially a smaller, younger swimmer, back toward the sea and even into deeper waters. And that's exactly what happened to me late that afternoon. I was standing in what I thought was shallow water, at least not deeper than I was tall. And then all of a sudden, it, it was as if I, I stepped off of a shelf into deeper water, which I couldn't stand. And it was as, as if I was being dragged backwards. Now, I knew, I knew how to swim. My parents had taught me to swim, but, but the current was stronger than I could swim. And I was being pulled outward and downward. I, I started gasping and, and reaching for my brother. And I, and I said to him with a mouth half full of water, help. He had this smug look on his face, as older brothers often do, as if to say, what's your problem? Quit goofing around. And he moved closer to me, but once he reached me, suddenly he was caught in it too. And if you've ever been around someone who's in danger in the water, the impulse for survival tells you to do anything to get your next breath of air. To this day, my brother still claims that once he reached me, I pushed him under the water so as to hold myself up. Now, that may be true. But as I tell him, I was no better off. He was underwater, and though I tried not to be, I wasn't really above the water. But as I tell him, again... I didn't mean to do that, sorry. In the garden, it was our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who metaphorically found themselves underwater. It was a perfect environment. It was paradise. 
They had everything they needed and more. They, they walked in the presence of God. They communed with him. I don't know if you've ever thought of the Garden of Eden this way, but the Garden of Eden was the first temple, the first place of worship where man communed with God. Adam was in community with God, but what ha- happened? Adam broke that community. He reached for something. He reached for something that was not his to reach for. Adam saw God's position and envied it. He tried to assume the position of God. He tried to occupy the throne that was meant for God alone. The serpent told Eve, you'll be like God. Would you like to be like God? Adam and Eve grasped for something that was not theirs to take. And in so doing, well, now they're in over their heads. Not only are they in over their heads but they broke the world. They broke the world. In their act of defiance, they let sin into an otherwise perfect place. And when sin entered the world, along with it, death. How do you repair that? Well, in almost the same breath, we read about the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. In that same chapter, just a few verses later, we read the first proclamation of the gospel. It's in Genesis 3.15, the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You you hear Pastor Filson say this all the time every time he prays. He references the seed who crushed the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3.15 and the Lord is talking about Jesus. That one day the offspring of Eve would come and undo the work of the serpent and not not only would he undo the work of the serpent, he would crush him and make him no more. That was the promise he made in the same breath as the pronouncement of the fall of man. And I want you to understand something here. God is not being reactive here. Uh Uh-oh, what have they done? What have they done? Now what am I going to do? I have to send someone down there to fix this. No, not at all. The response to the fall was already there from eternity past. The response was there before the fall. The Lord had answers before the problems present themselves. In our passage today, we read about in uh, verse 6, it says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, you see, God is eternal, and Jesus is part of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in person, part of the triune God. Jesus is eternal. He always was and always is, so Jesus was always there, yes, even before the fall. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, so how do you repair what Adam did? Along with breaking the world and ushering sin into it, Adam messed it up not only for himself, but for all his offspring to follow. He perfectly represented you and me. If we were in his shoes, we would have done exactly the same thing. And that's the big problem for us. How do you undo his sin when all his offspring after him will be infected by the same sin? How do you undo that? Well, it would take God himself. God himself, who is without sin, who knows no sin, he would have to, as it were, come down himself and repair what man broke. And in so doing, we're also told in verse 6 of our passage today that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I want you to hear that in relation to what I just described to you before about Adam and Eve, how they tried to grasp for something that wasn't theirs to grasp. Whereas Jesus, did you hear it? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's the difference between the two. Adam grasped for what was not his to grasp. 
Jesus did not grasp what was his to grasp. He didn't grasp what he was already in possession of. Instead, he set it aside. Instead of acting as Adam did, which was selfishly, Jesus acted selflessly. He was selfless. And as he did, the text says he emptied himself. What does that mean, he emptied himself? How did Jesus empty himself? As both my brother and I struggled in the water, and struggle is probably an understatement, uh, we, we were drowning. It was my mother who noticed first. Though they sat on a park bench from a distance, my mom still watching us like a hawk, she told my dad, Lee, they're in trouble. Now, I remember my dad, he was, like I said, fully clothed. And I don't know why I remember this detail, but, but he was in jeans. He was in white jeans. My dad never wore white jeans, but, but when you're traveling in Florida, you got to fit in, man. He was fully clothed, and he was sitting on, on the bench quite comfortably. He, of course, had a shirt on, belt too, but as I recall, he did set his loafers to the side so he could put his feet in the sand. No socks, of course, not in South Florida. But he was, aside from the shoes, fully clothed. Not only was he fully clothed, he, he had a wallet, a billfold, as it was called just a generation or two ago. The reason they called it a billfold was because, as you know, cash was much more common back then, and the wallet was the implement by which you would fold your bills, your money, and stow them in the back of your pocket for safety. My dad wasn't one to carry a lot of cash unless we were traveling. He had more cash than normal when he traveled to pay for all the incidentals that come along with going on a trip. Not only that, he had traveler's checks with him too. Does anyone remember traveler's checks, yeah? As best I remember, they were checks that you traveled with. <laughs> it was just as good as cash. Uh, function, actually, you know, but between the services, it was Jared Ribble, our drummer, who explained to me exactly how the traveler's checks work. So if you want to know, I'll tell you now. I know. But so he was loaded with all that in my dad's, in his, in his back pocket, along with his keys in his front pocket. I always remember my dad having so many keys. I don't know why he had so many keys. We lived in a two-bedroom home in California, but you would think for all the keys he had, we lived in a palace. And I'm not sure why he felt the need to travel with the keys, but he did. The keys represented security. If you have keys, you have access to something. And so my dad felt it was important to always keep that on his person. You don't want to lose your keys, and the best way to not lose your keys is just to make sure they're always on you. So he always had his keys with him. And loaded with all that, clothes, money, keys, he took off in a sprint toward the water and he plunged in. Setting aside the importance of all the things he carried with him, including and especially his comfort. Have you ever gone in the water fully clothed? Like with jeans on? It's just unnatural. It doesn't feel right. It, it feels like you're constrained. So, so all that he had, all these things still in his person, he emptied himself. He set certain things aside like his comfort, his money, the security of his keys, and of course his safety. He set his, all those things, but he didn't literally set them aside, but he didn't take account of them when he took off running to save his children. They weren't a consideration when he sprang to action. When we say that Jesus emptied himself, this is not to say he was depleted of all the things that he, was pre he previously was. No, there were certain things that he retained when he was incarnated, when he came in the flesh. 
He did not empty himself of his eternal deity. He was, always was, and always will be God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. When this passage tells us he emptied himself, this is to say he laid aside his prerogatives as God in order to take on the limitations of humanity. It wasn't so much subtraction as it was addition. The, the Son of God added to his person a human nature without surrendering any of his divine attributes. You see, when he took on flesh, he never became less than fully God. But what he did lay aside was the free access of his, of his divine prerogatives. He did not take account of his heavenly position. There, there wasn't a second thought, oh, oh man, what am I going to have to be without? I have all the rights and privileges of God Almighty. Do I really want to do this? What, what might this cost me? He didn't say any of that, any more than my dad took into consideration the prospect of losing his wallet in the sea. Losing, losing his wallet wasn't a thing as he went to save his children. And if that creates a point of comparison for you, multiply that times a thousand, times a million, as Jesus left his throne and ran to you. But hear me, he, he didn't just set his heavenly privilege aside. He, as our passage tells us, took on the form of a servant. The translation in the text is, is a little soft there. It might be better translated as slave. The Greek word is doulos. He took on the form of a slave. To be a slave or a bondservant, maybe, is, is, is lower than being a servant. You could be hired as a servant, and a servant is given specific duties or tasks and even retains certain rights, but, but a slave? A slave or a bondservant wasn't hired. They existed to pay off debts. They held no personal property. Jesus came not as a man or, or even as, as a hired servant, but as a slave, there was no lower position for him to occupy. He took on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So coupled with taking the lowest position one could occupy, he carried with him the limitations of finite beings, just like you and me. So though he remained fully God, he became fully man. So did Jesus yawn when he was tired? Yes, he absolutely did. did. Did his stomach growl when it was empty? Without a doubt. Did he ever stub his toe and, and feel its shooting sting? Most certainly he did. When it says he was found in human form, he was human in every way, and he did so willingly, without pause, without second-guessing. He did so in covenant with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This was his role he promised he would do, to save the ones he would call brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. It was the role of the high priest to be the intermediary between God and man. The high priest was the one who, who was set aside for the purposes of, of, of making a sin offering on behalf of the whole congregation. He would enter into the Holy of Holies, a man, a human being, who would enter into the, the place that, that held the mercy seat, the throne of God, and he would sprinkle the blood of the offering upon the mercy seat. But he didn't just, just serve as the high priest. Jesus didn't just serve as a high priest bringing the blood of an animal. He came bearing his own blood. When my dad ran down the beach, I didn't see this. 
because at this point, I'm underwater, at the very most, not in a good position to see him. But then he entered the water. But, but understand this, when my dad got in the water, he wasn't doing what every other swimmer in the ocean was doing that day. Every other person in the sea was out there to have fun. Every other man, woman, child in the water was there to partake of some kind of recreation. In fact, it probably wasn't 10, 15 feet away from us where there were some scuba divers checking out their new gear. They could have saved us. They were there for recreational purposes, and you know, that's what my brother and I intended on doing too. I don't know if you've ever experienced the sensation of, of inhaling water. When you take in water, your body's immediate response is to try and eject it, and it does so with force. And whenever your lungs expel air with that kind of velocity, your, your body then responds in an equal but opposite manner to try and recapture what you've just ejected. It's a reflex. So it's a natural function of the body. So when you breathe in water, your lungs make their first attempt to eject that water. But when your mouth is filled with water and that reflex to inhale starts to kick in, your brain says no. So you're trying to force your body not to engage in that reflex of ejecting the water and recapturing the air because you know you'll only just take in more water. And the thing is, you can hold that process off maybe for a moment or two, but eventually your body's reflexes have their way. And if I wasn't at that point, I'm certainly near it. So when my dad entered the water, he didn't come in for the fun of it. He entered the water with the purpose of putting himself into harm's way. He was willingly subjecting himself to, to what was happening to my brother and me. He was, he was signing up for whatever was happening to us. When Jesus was found in human form, he signed up for the total human experience. And the total human experience for, statistically speaking, 100% of us includes death. Verse 8 tells us Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I want you to capture the full realm of what this passage is saying. Remember where we started in all this. We started in verse 6. He was in the form of God. In other words, he occupied the highest spot. There is no name higher than his, like we just sang. There's no power greater than his. He is the supreme one, almighty God. And now, it's one thing if you can wrap your mind around the cosmic leap that it is to just, to just take on human form. That in of itself is mind-boggling. The infinite God take on human form. That in of itself will blow your mind away when you think about it too long. The infinite God of the universe who isn't bound by time or space, taking on the human form, which begins in the womb of his mother as something microscopic. This is, this is where the humiliation of Christ begins. When we think of humiliation, the, we tend to restrict it to, to Jesus' suffering. But, but that's not the case. For Christ, his humiliation commenced when he lowered himself down from the heavenlies, when he stepped down from heaven and wrapped himself in human DNA. He made himself small. The infinite made small. And again, just that alone is mind-blowing. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just subject himself to all the inconveniences this life throws at us. He subjected himself to death, but not just death, death on a cross. I wish I could spend more time telling you about the, the horrendous details it is to die on the cross. It's atrocious. 
And, and those who performed the execution by way of the cross knew it was awful too. Death on a cross was so deplorable that, that it was reserved for the worst of criminals. And it was considered such a degrading form of punishment that Roman law forbade any Roman citizen to be subject to it. Can you imagine? This is so awful, we wouldn't do it to any of our own people. It was reserved for the outcast, for the worst of the worst, the lowliest of the lowliest. Do you see what Christ did? He sat at the top. There is no place higher. And he set it aside to claim a place where no one could be lower. That's what Jesus did. There was no one who could rightfully claim more, and yet he set it all aside. He took the lowest place, not only subjecting himself to the death of the worst of criminals, but he subjected himself to something even worse. As Calvin said, for by dying in this manner, he was not only covered with ignominy, ignominy, it just means shame, in the sight of God, but was also accursed in the sight of God. In other words, yes, he died a gruesome death, but that wasn't the worst of what he faced. He took on death not just so he could identify with us, but he took on death to submit to having the sins of all who believe in him laid upon him, and in so doing, because those sins were laid upon him, he was accursed in the sight of God. What was hell for Jesus? It wasn't the mechanics of what they did to him on the cross. It was being accursed in the sight of God. That is the lowliest of lows. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made, he made him to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he didn't just set his heavenly privilege aside for our sake. He gave it to us. He took our sin, and then He gave us His righteousness so that we, we would be declared righteous in the sight of God. That's what He did. That's what humility is. That's the perfect picture of humility. There's no better picture of what humility is. He had legal claim to literally everything, but He set aside literally everything. Humility says, I, I know I have a right to something, but I'm going to give up that right for the sake of someone else. This is what Jesus did. And there's never, ever been a greater disparity between what was due someone and what was sacrificed. Never, ever. That's what he did for your sake. He did it for your sake. And when you start to get this, when you start to comprehend what it is that Jesus has done, the enormity of his sacrifice, then we need to go all the way back to the first verse of our passage. The first verse, verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, church, can I give you some straightforward instruction here? If you want to know what to do, if you want to know how to live, I can't be more clear than this. Do this. Christ had claim to everything, and then he gave up everything for his brothers and sisters. Adopt that mindset. Whatever it is you think you have right to, it's not greater than what Christ had claimed to. And whatever it is you think you're having to sacrifice for your brothers and sisters, it's not greater than what Christ sacrificed for you. Now, every analogy breaks down after a certain point because, yes, my father threw himself in harm's way without a second thought. And I know for certain his mentality in that moment was my life for yours, a thousand times so. There's nothing I wouldn't lay aside 
to save your lives. And he did, but fortunately, he didn't have to give up his life that day. I remember the sense of relief when he pulled us both up and, and I could allow my body to resume the natural process of taking air in while coughing and spitting up water. And, and I, remember, I remember how shocked I was to see my dad with all his clothes on. I, I, almost as if to say, well, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> as I had a conversation with someone about this in between the service, Jim Perry, and, and, uh, and how true is it that we don't even know to look for the Father when He comes to save us. We, we think it's up to us to save ourselves, but the Father shows up even, even, when we don't, even when we don't expect Him. And there He is, fully robed. I understand this now as a father. I get it. I, I would throw myself in front of a bus if it meant saving my family, but, but it was so far removed from what I understood normal experience to be to see my dad like that because what he's saying in that moment is, all this, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. It's nothing compared to you. Whatever, whatever I sacrifice in this moment, even if it costs me my life, it doesn't compare to the value I hold in you. My dad, thankfully, didn't lose his, his life, his wallet, or his keys. I remember he didn't lose his wallet because I remember him hanging money and traveler's checks on the clothesline outside. And what, what, what an impression that made upon me. I remember, you know why I remember that? You know why it still sticks in my brain? Because when I see those dollar bills hanging on the, on the clothesline, I said, I know I am more important than that. I know I'm more valuable than that in my father's eyes. And again, friends, this is our calling. This is who we are. We look at one another and say, what could be more important? What's worth more? There's nothing I have that I wouldn't set aside for you because it's what my Savior did for me. And we must understand, it's not just that Jesus was setting a good example for us. It's not just that Jesus is a good person and we want to be good people too. It's more transformative than that. Our behavior, the reason we do what we do and we reflect the behavior of Jesus is motivated and empowered by salvation in Christ, not by the example of Christ. This is why the passage tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not that you're imitating Christ's behavior, but by virtue of the fact that you are in Christ Jesus, your motives and priorities have been completely rearranged because you know the reality of what it is to be saved, to be rescued. And it changes who you are. Listen to, listen to how the New English Bible translation renders verse 5. It reads, let your bearing toward one another arise out of your life in Christ. I'll say it again. Let your bearing towards one another arise out of your life in Christ. Your experience of being rescued by Christ and the realization and understanding that everything that He set aside for you, it will change the way we think of one another, how we interact with one another. We see one another with selfless eyes, and it causes us to say, you before me, you before me every time, your needs before me. And if we're all thinking this way, no one carries a burden. No one carries a burden alone. No one carries a burden alone, physical, spiritual, or otherwise. I, 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 I don't allow you to carry any burden because Christ hasn't allowed me to carry any burden. I've never felt so relieved than to be out of the water in that moment. Grateful we left the water that we were so eager to enter, our burden removed, but see the picture. We, we didn't exit the water under our own power. 
We left the water. We left the danger under the power of my father's arms and legs. We had nothing to give, nothing to contribute. We emerged from the ocean solely under my father's strength. And Christ does the same for you and me. He rescued us by His strength and His strength alone. We didn't contribute to our rescue. He did it all. He took on our burden and He did so by way of a sinless life. And when, and when the grave tried to make its claim on the sinless, perfectly righteous Savior, God the Father said no. He looked down at His Son and said no, not guilty. And this is why the grave couldn't hold Him down, because He wasn't guilty. And as the passage concludes with its final stanza, by the way, this is a hymn. What you're reading here in, in, in Philippians 2, 6 to 11 is a hymn, maybe one of the first hymns sung in the early church, in the early, early church. And Paul put it in this letter to the Philippians for us. And the final stanza says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. We've come full circle. We've come full circle. Highly exalted, lowliest of lows, highly exalted once again. Our Father restores. And here's what that means ultimately. It means because of our union with Christ, because of your union with Christ, because we're united with Him, we died with Him, and we will be raised with Him. We will be restored. What Adam broke will be restored. Romans 6.5 tells us, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You've been given the greatest gift you could ever receive because of the Savior, the Savior that made the greatest sacrifice beyond what we could ever imagine. Church, let this mind be yours and mine in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Dear Father, thank you for your Son, and, and thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. When the waters tried to consume us, you were there, and you would not allow it. You threw yourself in, in our harm's way and gave us life. Please cause us to look at one another the same way. Let us, let us not try and lay claim to anything to the detriment of our brothers and sisters, but let us sacrifice as you've sacrificed. Allow us to follow in your footsteps and reflect the love of Christ to everyone we encounter, for it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.